we finished Peter, and instead of just moving on to Second Peter, we decided um, to move on to something else. And some of you that are familiar with your Bibles and been part of the church for a long time are looking at this this banner right now, going, "Oh no, no, can't believe we're doing that." Um, some of you that aren't real familiar with your Bible have no idea what you're in for right now, but you are in for something. Um, so if you have your Bible. Turn to Ecclesiastes. If your Bible is closed and you're holding the pages up facing you and you split it right, right in about dead center, you have a good chance of hitting it. Uh, if you go to Proverbs, hang a right. If you go to Song of Solomon, which is the book we don't speak of, hang a left. So, How many of you are familiar with this book? I'm going to go ahead and read the text and then we're going to have fun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. And it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to come among those who come after. Um, How many of you have been to Disneyland? A lot of the room, most of the room. How many of you have been to a cemetery? Which one do you like better? (laughs) Me too, actually. (laughs) I know that's twisted, but it's true. Pretty sure we all agree on, on which one we like better. Which one do you think is better for you? These are things that, um, I grew up actually in Southern California, like a lot of you, not unique. Um, We were really close to Disneyland growing up, and so there would be mornings when um, my parents would just wake me and my brother up. It would be like a Saturday, and they'd be like, hey, we're just going to go to Disneyland for the day. Like it was just spontaneous. It was something that was just easy to do. And so um, I have a lot of nostalgia about that place. Uh, My wife does as well. We still go regularly because of that. We were there a couple years ago. And um, these are some of the things that I find myself saying when I spend a day at Disneyland to myself, okay? Uh, What am I going to ride first? What am I going to eat first? When is the line going to be shortest for Pirates of the Caribbean? I ask that one a lot during the day. Um, I should have wore different shoes is usually something I'll say at some point during the day. Uh, What should I get a churro 
I don't know why the churros there are really good. I think they're just normal churros, but they taste good because it's Disneyland. Uh, when am I going to get one is, is a question I ask. Uh, it's hot. I should go on a water, a water ride. That's one of the things I say when I'm at Disneyland. Um, and then finally, at some point during the day, uh, one of the things I say to myself is, um, I, I wish this day wouldn't end. I don't want to go back to reality. Right? Um, these are things that I say to myself in a cemetery. What were these people like? What were their lives like? How have I lived my life? What kind of person am I? What have I lived for? Who have I lived for? Where are all these people now? And finally, I really need to go to Disneyland. (laughs) Which one is is better for me? Which one is more beneficial for me? Here's a proverb for you. Sorrow is better than laughter. Isn't that great? Sorrow is better than laughter. Solomon's going to tell us in chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end for all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, it's it's good for us who are living um, to walk through the cemetery, to ask ourselves those questions. And the reason is because sorrow is where we do most of our growing. It's where God does some of his best work in each of us is during times of sorrow. It's through our uh, reflecting, our contemplating, our self-examining, not of the trivial stuff, but of the big stuff. I do not um, go to Disneyland to grow. I go to Disneyland to shrink, quite frankly. I, I go there to become a kid again. I go there to um, shrink, to take a few years of maturity off, not to add maturity. I go there to simplify. I go there to ignore. I go there to forget. I go there to check out. I go there to escape. Escape what? Escape the big stuff. The big questions, the inevitabilities, the grind of life, the sorrow A cemetery doesn't allow you to escape. A cemetery takes all of that big stuff and it puts it into your face so as to make it impossible to ignore. All this to say, we're going to walk through a cemetery. Excuse me. If you still hear me twisting words, it's because I had a big, big migraine this morning. And um, my, migra- my, my migraines scramble my brain. And so um, I'm actually in a, in a moment right now of having a brain scramble. Um, my doctors say it's a lot like having a, a stroke where you're actually unable to even pronounce the words in your head that you want to. So if, if this sounds sideways or it sounds like I'm struggling right now, it's because I am. And so um, maybe... Maybe we can just take a minute and you guys can can pray for this real quick, okay? I'm going to slow down, and maybe that will help me pronounce a little bit.
all right? So what is this talk about Disneyland and Cemetery? Well, I just want you to know that you, we are about to walk through a cemetery for a couple months. And I, and I don't blame you if some of your, you were going, well, I'm going to find a different church uh, for a few months because uh, it's, not always, it's not always fun to walk through uh, a, a cemetery. It may not uh, be, be something that we want to do. It may not uh, be enjoyable to do. It may not feel good uh, for us to walk through it. Uh, but it's necessary for you and I to walk through one every once in a while. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about this book for a few minutes. First of all, what is the word Ecclesiastes mean? In the Hebrew, it means kohilet. That is, or I'm sorry, that is the word in Hebrew, which means preacher. We're going to see that in the first line of the text here, the preacher. Um, and it's also where we get the, the Greek word ekklesia. Do you guys know what ekklesia is? The church or the gathering or the assembly. And so uh, basically this book is written to be proclaimed. That's what a preacher does is proclaim a word to a gathered people or to the masses. And so that's what this is. The book is known as wisdom literature. We have books in our Bible called wisdom literature. Those would be Job, it would be Proverbs, and it would be Ecclesiastes. And we will find Ecclesiastes to be uh, a bit different than Solomon's other work, which is Proverbs, because there in Proverbs we saw the maturity of Solomon's wisdom. But here we're going to see the foolishness of Solomon's wisdom. Um, Yet... Even though we're going to see Solomon uh, play the, few, the, the fool, uh, it's going to teach us still wisdom. We're still going to derive wisdom from this book. Um, by the way, wisdom is not about IQ. It is not about um, retaining lots of information. It's not about um, how educated you are. Okay? Wisdom is ultimately about rightly dividing and rightly discerning that which we observe. That's wisdom. In other words, it's the, it's, it's the ability for us to see, light, uh, see right the things that are among, uh, around us. It's a proper interpretation of that which is around us. And though in large part, this is going to be a, a dark book, Solomon is going to help us see some things properly. The word vanity in this book is going to occur 37 times in this book. The key phrase, under the sun, is going to occur 29 times. Another phrase that we will see over and over again is, I have said in my heart, or I have set my heart to know, which tells us what we're getting from Solomon, that he is actually um, coming to his conclusions by looking inside of himself, looking to himself, in himself, for the answers, for the solutions to life, and we all need to know it's not there. There is no solution there. We we cannot look into ourselves and expect to find the answers and the solution to life's problem. We are the problem. We are the reason why we are in the the mess that we are in. And so it is ridiculous for us to look inside to the place that is the problem for a solution. We need something outside of us. 
We need somebody that transcends us, above us, to bring us that which we lack and which, which we need. And yet this is very much so how Solomon is going to approach this book and the conclusions that he comes to. 31 times we will be asked questions to which he does not give us an answer. Leaving us again to look within for answers. The things that he does bring about here are intended to shake us. They are um, really intended for us to question what we really believe about ourselves, about life, about purpose, and about meaning. The first time that I ever read this book or became familiar with it as a young Christian, I immediately had two thoughts to myself. One, this is rad. Like, this is an awesome book. Like, I can't believe that somebody else in the Bible thinks the, way, the same way that I think. Like, and I, what I mean by that is like twisted, like off, like a little bit sideways. And I remember thinking it just, it just popped out when I first saw this book. Like, I can't, I can't believe that somebody thinks like this, that somebody thinks like me. The second thing that I thought is how in the world did this ever make it into the Bible? How did this book ever make it into the Bible? How was this allowed? How in the world do you take a narrative that is so bleak and so depressing and so melancholy and work it into the story of redemption and promise and abundant life and hope? Which brings us to a few reasons why you and I should pay attention to the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay? This is actually why we decided to land in this book and go through this book. Um, why Ecclesiastes still speaks today. I'm going to give you three reasons, okay? Number one, because it corrects our ongoing temptation to find our fulfillment and joy in this world apart from God. Let me say that again. It corrects our ongoing temptation to find our fulfillment and our joy in this world apart from God. We are reminded as we read through this book how dreadful that thought is. How, how miserably hopeless we were before we had a collision with Jesus. Do you remember that for you? I remember how it was clearly before me and Jesus, or Jesus actually did business with me. I remember the way that I used to look at my life. I re- remember the way that I used to look at life in general. The lens that I used to view it through. How much of it was full of meaninglessness. And so what do we do when we fall into meaninglessness? We try to run to certain things for meaning. And so it could be, um, for, for me, it was girls, obviously, at a young age. I know nobody else, no other dudes do that. Um, uh, it, it was Because they were going to fix me and they were going to bring me meaning. They were going to uh, turn my pointlessness into purpose, um, and it didn't work. Um, it was drugs for me for a while. Um, when I was trying to be a good boy, it was things like sports. Um, even good things we can throw ourselves into. It's, it's all called idolatry if ultimately we're kneeling at that cross and saying, I need you to fix me. I'm looking to you to fix me and provide something for me that I cannot find. And, and, and the problem is that nothing was able to quench the thirst of all that life offers and promises. 
It's unable to. And yet, this is our default, is to go to things that can't help us, that can't save us, that can't give us real meaning and purpose. And this is a lot where Solomon's coming from here. But this book, more than any other book, kills all of our idols. That's why you and I should pay attention to this book. It kills our idols over and over again. It kills all of our gods that we continually attempt to follow in fashion in hopes of finding satisfaction and fulfillment there, whether it's education or knowledge or government or pleasure or companionship or creation, nature, or work or achievement or accomplishment or gain or possessions or purchases or power or accolades or reputation, on and on and on, Solomon is going to kill them all. One by one, he's going to put a bullet in each of them for us. It reminds us that the world is incapable of satisfying the heart because the heart is too large for the object. We need something bigger than what this world offers us. So number one, this book corrects our ongoing tendency towards idolatry. Number two, it allows us to understand the people that we are trying to reach. I hope you're trying to reach people because you have something that they need. This book allows us to understand the people that we're trying to reach. Everybody in the world knows that there is something terribly wrong with the world. Everybody. I don't care what they say. Our understanding as Christians of this book allows us to sympathize with them. It allows us to feel what they feel. It allows us to even agree with them. It allows us to sympathize with their godless plight. Thus creating, hopefully, in us a heart to bring hope to the hopeless. Thus creating that which everybody around us needs and we know to be true. What we see here in Ecclesiastes, if we boil it down, is basic, honest human philosophy apart from God. Hopelessness. Hopelessness. Man has tried throughout history to be happy without God, and it is still being tried every single day by millions of people. And this book shows us the absurdity of that attempt. Again, creating in us, hopefully, a strong desire to bring these people to the fountainhead of true happiness, the fountainhead of true fulfillment and purpose, their creator. Because of this, the book of Ecclesiastes will preach it will evangelize, it will convert, and it will save. And this is why we preach it. Number three, it bridges some clear gaps between our Bible and the contemporary world. It displays that the Bible is much smarter than people give it credit for. It shows us that the Bible is far more honest, thus trustworthy, than people think it is. And it does it by the honest exposure of shared human realities that we all know to be true. We know these things to be true. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it doesn't lie to me. I hope you like that about the Bible too. I don't like being lied to. I don't like somebody dressing something up or putting makeup on just to get me in the door. To have the the floor fall out from under me. To find that it wasn't something that... I thought it was, or that it advertised it would be. I I love that there's no deceit here. 
in the Scriptures. I love that it's not deceitful, but it's brutally honest. Don't you hate those, um, those commercials that you see on TV from the pharmaceutical companies that come up with like a new cure for whatever it is your condition is? And it seems like it's a half-hour-long commercial, even though it's not, right? And, and what is it? It's an advertisement. The, the music's super serene and super nice, and it's people like, like skipping around in a sunset smiling because they, there's a new pill for their condition, right? And then you get to the backside of the commercial, and, and quiet and fast. It's like, it's like this will like catch your eyeballs on fire if you take it. You know what I mean? Like your butt will melt. You know, um, like you will grow horns out your back, like like it like it, it just goes on this big old deal. And it's like, well, this like, why are these people skipping in the sunset then? You know what I mean? Why are you leading with that? You know what I mean? Our Bibles don't do that. It doesn't lie to us. It puts everything right in front of us and says, this is the truth of the world that you live in as a result of sin. And this is where Solomon's coming from. I love that it doesn't lie to me. I hate being insulted like that. I want us to make sure that we know that even, the, uh, many, even though many of Solomon's thoughts and conclusions may not always be inspirational, the scriptures that contain his thoughts and conclusions are fully inspired. In other words, God wants them here. God wants these words here. He wants you and I to hear these words. He wants you and I to pay attention to what Solomon's saying here, even if it's not inspirational. He wants us to know this. He wants us to hear this. And for that reason alone, we ought to pay attention to this book, and we ought to expect blessing, and we ought to expect growth when we dig into it. Let's go ahead and run through this. Verse 1. I know this seems right now like this is going to be a really long sermon. We're going to move quick. Don't worry about it. We're good. I got you. The word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Um, I'm going to just go out on a limb and say this is Solomon. Um, I know that, 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 that Terry's laughing. Like It seems like you can't look at any book in the, in the canon anymore without questioning who the author is. It's ridiculous. Um, this, is, we're, this is Solomon. The other pastors are going to agree with me that this is Solomon. We're going to teach this like this is Solomon because there's no good reason to think that this isn't Solomon. Um, this is uh, Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, uh, wisest man that ever lived. If you guys are curious, uh, if you want to dig farther into the, the controversy um, or you're questioning it in any way, go home, open your books, and have fun. We're going to go ahead and call this Solomon. All right? You guys cool with that? All right, good. So uh, this, this is the wisest man that, that ever lived. Uh, the preacher, like we said, it simply means one who has something to say. Somebody who has something to share with the gathered people. Number two, he, of course, says vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We have to have somewhat of a decent idea of what this word means because, like I said earlier, he's going to use it frequently like 37 times, right? And so uh, what does it mean? And just like a lot of Hebrew words, there's, there's sometimes with these words a lot of nuances um, or variants of the word, but this word primarily means emptiness, futility, 
vapor. Vapor. You've been out on a cold night before, obviously. A cold night in Central Oregon. Unless you're a snowboard bird, like some of you cheaters. Um, And you can see your breath. Sometimes it's so thick that um, it can even obstruct your view. But what happens when you go to grab it? What happens when you take a swipe at it? When you try to take hold of that breath that you can see frozen in the air? It eludes you. It's, it's gone. It's not there. And, and this, is, this is really what Solomon is co- uh, communicating to us um, in the sense of just a general statement about the, about the world. It's like that breath. Everything in life is something that ultimately eludes you. Isn't that cool? Exciting, fun. Um, I am 47 years old. Me and my buddy were just talking about this today. I got my buddy from California up here. We were sitting there having coffee. And uh, we were two kids at one time in junior high together in Southern California. Um, and I don't have a lot of friends that I've kept track of and that have continued to be really good friends. And this one was. Um, in fact, he's one of those guys that used to share the Lord with me, even as a young kid, when I was just a little punk teenager. Um, didn't care about anything that he was sharing with me. Um, but he was always a good friend. And we were sitting this morning having coffee, and he just said, how in the world are we knocking on the door of 50? Where did it go? You know? Um, and I am 47 years old. I'm about to turn 48. I have no idea where the heck it went. I have no idea where it went. And it just seems like the older I get, um, the more it's, it's a train out of control. Like someone's foot is on the accelerator. And, uh, and it's just getting heavier and heavier on that accelerator. I do not understand it. This is a lot of what vape, uh, um, Solomon's talking about here as it, as it pertains to life. He says, I, I, I watch it, I see it, I smell it, I taste it, I touch it, I experience it, but every bit of it, every bit of it is vapor. He's saying that just like vapor, it's elusive. You cannot catch it, you cannot hold on to it. It's empty, it's fading, it's fleeting, it's faulty, it disappears, and therefore it is meaningless in that sense. Um, I debated sharing this, but if I could give you, like thinking of a, de- a decent example of how to unpack kind of where Solomon's coming from and what he means by this. Um, I am a person that, like I said, I already kind of showed my cards. Um, I, I tend to think sideways uh, a little bit. I always kind of have in my life. Um, I think to a lot of you, um, I, I seem very outward uh, in a lot of ways, uh, maybe very social, uh, outgoing. Uh, when the truth is in, inside, I'm a, I've always been kind of a, a, a pretty depressing person, a pretty depressed person person. I don't think I'm unique. I think that's something that's fairly common to us living in a broken world. Okay. So I'm not saying it as if I'm someone that's special, but just to be completely honest with you, a lot of times there's a funeral going on inside of me. Um, you guys just don't know that. Um, and, and one of the ways that that happens is that you can, you can take me into the finest moments of life, the really special ones where the people that you love the most are there. And you're doing exactly the thing that you would want to do with every. Everybody's just having the greatest time. Everything about the moment is perfect. 
and I'm miserable in the midst of it. And the reason is because I'm already looking forward, thinking about the fact that that moment's going to end. It's going to expire. And because I do that, because I look forward in the middle of the greatest moment, the greatest blessing that God can give me, and I'm projecting at the fact that it's going to expire and cease to be, I'm unable to enjoy that moment in the moment. I know it's ridiculous, and I'm sure, again, that, that, that I'm not special. I'm sure that some of you know what I'm talking about, all right? And in a sense, this is kind of what Solomon's doing with us here. In a sense, this is, this is the kind of vanity that he's talking about. He's, he's inviting us to wallow in the, the real value of what we actually have, which is, apart from God, nothing. It's all going to end. It's all going to cease to be. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Um, some of you were like, where's the, you know, can't we see Battle Hymn of the Republic? Like, nope, nope, this is what, this is what we're doing. Okay? We're going to sing a funeral march. This is, in a sense, what he's doing. It's just, again, it's, a, it's all about the futility of life. Verse 3, um, he, this is basically the first question. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Um, he wants us uh, basically to answer that, but he's already answered that. He answered that in two just now. Like he showed his hand, um, which is nothing. Like it's a, it's a rhetorical question. Like what does man have to gain by all of his toil? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. The thing that's in question here. In verse 3 is gain, um, a.k.a. profit. What is that? What is it to profit? Some of you that are even using a King James still, um, you know, you, well, it will actually translate into that word uh, profit. And it just, it just basically means that which we have to show for all our, ha- our hard work. That which we have to show for all our hard work. And some of you might say, well, I, I've got a qu- uh, quite a bit to show. As a result of my um, hard work and toil, I have a house, I have cars, I have guns, I have ammo. You need a lot of money to have that stuff these days. Um, I eat well. Uh, I might have sent a couple kids to college. You know, you can kind of go on and on about the things that you've, you've gained um, as a result of your, your toil. And this is true uh, now, but do you want to hear something that's super depressing? Because, because you guys haven't heard anything yet that's depressing. Um, everything that you own, everything that you have built, everything that you have worked for will someday be somebody else's or cease to exist. That's just the, the truth of it. Isn't that cool? Everything that you have will either be somebody else's or it will cease to exist. Therefore, not only is it vaporous, and I don't know if that's real, like use of the word, but it sounds good. Um, but it's also in that sense, it's also meaningless. Have you ever gone to the junkyard? I'm sure that you all have gone to the dump at some point. I have gone to the dump. I have taken stuff to the dump and I have stood there with my junk looking out into the pile that I'm about to throw it to. And, and, and you're seeing, um, all kinds of stuff out there in that, in that pile, um, that's, that's done that maybe at one time had a, had a story, but it doesn't anymore. Uh, at one time, it might have been somebody's gain, but it's not their gain anymore. Now it's the dump's gain. It's the landfill's gain. And that stuff is going to roth and, uh, um, moth and rust, just like the Bible talks about, right? 
It's, it's true with our stuff as, as well. This is a true observation Solomon's making, even though it's a total bummer. Because if you haven't figured it out yet, this is a worldview that's purely horizontal, not vertical. It's, it's purely horizontal. These are the inevitable truths of a purely naturalistic, atheistic worldview and philosophy. It is in that worldview that it is an absolutely true statement. It means nothing, and I gain nothing. Jesus seconds this conclusion. Matthew chapter 16, he says, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his life? Again, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is implied, and that is nothing. You don't, you don't gain anything. So, so now we're going to watch Solomon prove his point, support his conclusion that everything is vanity, beginning with his examination of the realm of nature. Creation. And this is the part I promised that we're going to move quickly. I know I said that before. We're going to move quickly through this, right? So we're going to go verse 4. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, people live, people die, people are forgotten, but the earth just keeps on going. The universe just keeps trudging along. And he almost says that. I don't know if you noticed this. He almost says that as if it's better to be the human, the one that's going, the one that's, that's, that's actually dying, that's actually coming and going, than it is to be the one who's remaining, the universe. Interesting. Why? Verse 5. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. Monotony, drudgery, the depressing cycle of predictability. Even the sun is, is exhausted. Even the sun is exhausted. Even the sun is stuck in a pointless rut, and it can't get out of it. It can't bring newness, and it can't bring meaning. The wind, verse 6 same thing. The wind blows to the south and goes to the north. Around and round goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. What's he talking about? He's talking about the jet stream. He even finds the jet stream boring. He even finds the jet stream depressing, pointless, which is interesting because we tend to view the, the wind as free and spontaneous, even exciting, right? Unbri- unbridled. But Solomon finds it depressing. He finds it boring. That's empty too. What else can we throw in there according to Solomon? How about the water? Right? Verse 7. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place that uh, the seams flow, there they flow again. Same thing. Even water is stuck. Water is stuck too. It's stuck. Trapped in a perpetual cycle of meaningless exercise. Notice how Solomon's not only not amazed with the intricately balanced science of these created and complex systems, he's bored by them. He's bored by them. In fact, if you want to see something really interesting, it's the complete opposite of what we came to find out of Solomon's dad, David when he surveyed the creation of God in places like Psalm 19, 
where he says, let me just read you a little bit of it. The, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words uh, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through the, uh, through the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun. Check that out. He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving its chamber. And like the straw man runs its course with joy. And he goes on and on and on about this. In other words, David, when he looks at creation, is going, all of it screams of your power, Lord. All of it does. It screams of your purposes. It screams of your handiwork and your your greatness and your character. It screams of something that's altogether meaningful. And then Solomon looks at that and goes, what a bummer. You know what I mean? What a bummer. Like, what a drag. Everything that I'm looking at, what a, what a drag. How upsetting this is. Solomon's altogether unimpressed. In fact, he loathes creation. This is what he's clearly communicating In verse 8, look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Solomon's conclusion is everything in the created universe that exists is always striving and never arriving. It's always striving and never arriving. It's tired. Don't, Don't you just want to hug this guy? You know what I mean? This dude needs a hug. You know, it's like, well, it's, it's like, bring it in, buddy. Like, let me just hold you for a minute. Like, this is, this is heavy stuff. He's looking at it as if, as if creation's just working and working and working without ever producing anything new. And if it's true that the universe, um, if it's true about the universe, that even something as big and grand as the universe seems pointless, meaningless, and stuck in a rut. What does it mean for a little, tiny, insignificant speck like me? What does that mean? If the big thing, the universe, is pointless, then the small thing is infinitely so. We're just on the treadmill of life, you and I, just existing. We exist, and then we die. When this is the dominant worldview which it is the dominant worldview, it is no wonder, guys, that suicides are through the roof. It is no wonder that mass shootings are through the roof. It is no wonder that divorce is through the roof. It is no wonder that drug addiction is through the roof, along with the legalization and normalization of it so that it's easier for us to get a hold of the things that are ruining our lives. It's no surprise that sexual freedom is louder and prouder and bigger than it's ever been with this dominant worldview, which then leads to an incalculable amount of baby murders. I mean, why shouldn't it? Why shouldn't it? All of this is just life in a meaningless box, and there's nothing else. Nothing else. Life's meaningless. We're meaningless. Let's eat, drink, be merry, and kill each other for tomorrow we die. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, other than the kill each other part. 
You know what I'm saying? But that, but that's what we're seeing. By the way, if you are not careful and I am not careful as a Christian, even as Christians, we can fall into the same philosophical trap that Solomon is presenting here. Every one of us. That we're just stuck on the treadmill of life with no real meaning. That we're just stuck on the treadmill of life just existing. Here I am again, doing dishes. Oh, and you know what? I just did those dishes that I'm doing right now three days ago. They're dirty again. They need to be washed again. And you know what's even worse? In three more days, I'm going to have to do them again. Right? We do the same thing with laundry. Like the laundry is endless. It just keeps coming. Why? Because we keep dirtying our clothes. The, the lawn. Why does the lawn keep growing even? You know what I mean? Like frustrating, you know? I don't have that problem because I don't know how to keep a lawn. I wish my lawn did keep growing. And I just kill it. Every time I get a lawn, I kill it. So I'll have to talk to you afterward. Right? Brushing your teeth, going to work, saying you're sorry, on and on and on and on and on. It just keeps happening. We're just on that treadmill. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that meaningless existence where that's all that life is about. I want to take verses 9 through 11 in one swoop here. And that is, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. It even rhymes um, in the English. So, Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things yet to be among those who come after. In other words, you and I are not going to be as rad as we thought we were going to be. You know what I'm saying? And like, like I need to know that. That's good for me to know. Because I knew for sure I was going to be the, the coolest guy anybody knew. Just awesome. We're probably not going to come up with something new is what it means. We're probably not going to come up with something new. We're probably not going to be as special and unique to the world as we might have hoped we would. We're probably not going to come up with, with something that's completely groundbreaking like we were certain we would when we were kids. Do you remember that when you were a kid? I knew when I was a a, a young kid that I was going to do something special and altogether different. I was going to fix some things in this world. Like something big was going to happen through me. Solomon says somebody's been there. Somebody's done that. Somebody's written the book. In fact, just go to Barnes & Noble and look up any subject you want. It is true. I've had people tell me for years, pastor friends, dude, when are you going to write a book? When are you going to write a book? And every every time that um, I find a subject, a biblical subject that I'm interested in, you're going to go and find that it's already been written 500 times over by people that can write it way better than I can. So that balloon gets popped too. I don't even get to write a book because it's already been done. And it's been done really well. And that stinks for us. That, 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 that stinks because we just want to break the cycle of predictability and the drudgery of life so bad just to feel as though we're experiencing or doing something new, 
discovering something new. I believe that this is why we all sit around and we say that we hate media, but we can't wait for it to bring us the next headline. You know what I'm saying? We can't wait for us to bring us the next piece of gossip or the next drama or the next crisis. We're waiting for it. We're even hoping for it. And if there isn't a big one, we'll settle for a small one, right? Me and my wife, when we moved up here in 1993, were dirt poor, and we would sit at night in front of our old, really bad television, and and we would fix our antennas just right so that we could get two channels. And one of them was Z21, right, which is local news. And we're from Southern California. People, this was not news in 1993, They were reaching for stuff. They were looking for anything to report on as if it was a crisis, as if it was something new, you know. They'd be like, oh, we had a big gust of wind today, and it blew a trash can across the road, and we got got reporters live on the scene right now. Me and Carrie would be like, what? You know what I mean? Like, what the heck is this? You know what I mean? Just anything. Just give us something. You know what I mean? We crave that. We, We look for that. We're doing it right now. Heat wave 2021, some of you guys are probably saying, you know, what I'm, you know what I mean? Like, yes, it's been an uncomfortable week, but it is not news that it reached 100 degrees in Central Oregon. It has happened before, and it will happen again. It's just, it's just the way it is. It's not, it's not altogether new, but we, we want to think that something is. Something to, again, break the monotony, break the cycle of just the motions that we go through over and over and over again. There's nothing new. It's all been done. These verses remind us that no matter how rad, how special, how unique we think we are, history is not stopping for us. It will move on because that's what history does. People and events that were once big disappear as time marches on. I used to love when Jay Leno would do those um, street dealios on late night. Do you remember that? Where he'd go out into Hollywood, like Hollywood Boulevard, and he'd ask people like the, the most basic questions having to do with U.S. history, right? Like, who are the four faces on Mount Rushmore? And like some of the answers were unbelievable. Like you would think like this is a joke. Like, there's no way, like, these people don't know the answers to this, right? But they wouldn't know the answers to it. They'd be like, what was Abraham Lincoln known for? And they'd be like, he invented the telephone? And they'd be like, not close. No, not at all. Like, no, he didn't. It's just amazing what people wouldn't know. I'm going to prove it to you right now. You guys ready? This is the 4th of July, right? Who was the 10th president of the United States of America? Anybody? No, 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 no. You can't do that. You can't cheat. I hear that over there. Someone's asking Siri and it doesn't, you can't do it. None of you know. That sucks. That sucks for that dude that you don't even know what he did. Who was the 21st president of the United States? Oh. Who was the 21st president of the United States of America? How patriotic are you? I had to look it up, so I'm I'm with you. (laughs) Number 10, John Taylor. Number 10, John Taylor, or Tyler, sorry. Number 20, I can't pronounce it now. Number 21, Chester Arthur. Chester Arthur. What did he do? I don't know, but he was president. We, We 
from these two, from number 10 and number 21, we're not only, we're, we're not even 200 years deep from when they were presidents of supposedly the greatest nation that's ever been. And we don't know who they are. Why? Because it's all vanity. It's all vanity. It's fleeting. It's elusive. It is empty. It's empty. Solomon's right. Yet again. All of this, I I know, guys, you've been um, really good sports. We're going to go ahead and close this thing down now. Uh, um, I know that this has been weird. I know that it's been very morbid. I know that it's been a little bit crazy. I know that it it seems maybe that um, this stuff does not belong in the Bible the way that it sits unless, unless we make sure that we zero in on the most key phrase that's used over and over and over in this book, and that phrase is, under the sun. If you do not catch that, none of this will be right. Under the sun. We see it from our text today, used in verses 3 and used in verse 9, which, put in another way, simply means life apart from God. Life apart from from God, life without God. In other words, this is what life without God looks like. This is what life without God feels like. This is what life apart from God is. This is what you're left with when you simply exist inside the box. This is what you're left with when you're living life under the sun, apart from the one who created the sun. The one who is over it. I mentioned earlier that we too as Christians are susceptible to falling into the trap of vanity and purposelessness in existence. Um, and And it isn't a mystery really how it happens. It isn't a mystery really how we get to that point. Here's how it happens. If we fail as Christians at any time to acknowledge God in our lives as the pure source of meaning, life, value, purpose... Then, be prepared to forfeit life, meaning, value, and purpose in whatever it is that you're doing. That's how it works. See, to know God is the difference. To know God is the difference. To be known by God is the difference. It's what makes the difference between existing and abundant life. Knowing Him. Being in relationship with Him. Looking to Him as our source of happiness and satisfaction. There is nothing and nobody other than Him that again can appease us. That can quench our sense and our quest for something that's not meaningless. It is Him alone. It is Him. Even our country. I love where we live. I love that God and His sovereignty allowed me to be here the 4th of July today, right? But this country's going to fall someday too. It's going to cease to exist. It's going to cease to exist. God will never fail us. He will never cease to exist. He's never going to move on us. He's never going to dip on us. Like, God is fully committed to us. He fully loves us. I love that we 
have the freedom that we have in this country to freely worship. But guess what? If that all went away tomorrow, guess what you and I would do? We would still worship God. We would still get together and we would worship the Lord. We would still find a way to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Nothing could stop us. So yes, independence is nice. And yes, liberty is nice. But you know what the most important one is to me? It happened in the dark winter of 1990. When I was in a jail cell for six months with a Bible. That was the day. That was the day that I found independence. And I found freedom from my sin, from Satan, and from death. And I have never been the same since. They can't take that from us. They can't take that from us. Why? Because God is worthy of everything that we have and everything that we are in our worship to Him. And therefore, He is the fountainhead of our joy and of our happiness. There is nothing else, so stop trying. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy things in life because we enjoy things in life all the time. We just need to remember who the gift giver is, who gave us those things to enjoy. We need to make sure that we're not replacing the gift for the gift giver. We enjoy the things that we enjoy because God is so good that he allows us to enjoy the things that we have. I don't even know how I just got way off like that, but I hope you understand. You and I have everything to boast about and celebrate today because we, we, have, we have experienced independence and freedom in Christ Jesus. When Jesus stepped onto the scene into this creation, He made all things new. When Jesus stepped into our lives, He made all things new. Not in the sense that everything became immediately fixed, but in the sense that meaning and purpose and value was given a body and a, and a face and a voice and words. Words of life. Words that speak altogether more glorious than anything Previously spoken to us. It's like the sun came out for the first time when Jesus came. And it's because this is true. Because this is true. Our Bible can say things like, if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past. Behold, everything's become new. Meaning the way that we view things. The lens that we look through. The world view that we have. The way that we interpret what's going on around us and what's going down. It's all made new. Through Christ. He gives us a new set of glasses so that we can see properly. True wisdom from above. Right? Our newfound relationship with the God of the universe gives us newfound insight into what we're doing here and why we're doing it and who we're doing it for. He changes everything. Christ in us changes everything. God for us changes everything. Solomon says that life under the sun, you can work your fingers to the bone and have nothing in the end to show for it, profit nothing, gain nothing. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, in Christ your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. It is not meaningless. Even the small things are not meaningless in Christ. He has redeemed it all. It is all valuable. It all matters. Why? Because of Him. Because of Him. 
it is no longer meaningless because of what and who we're laboring for. Paul goes on to say in Philippians, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Even the bleakest, most depressing reality that we can think of in life, death, is gain now too. Amen? That means that you and I now can walk through a cemetery and come out with hope and thanksgiving to God and gratitude for what He has done and accomplished on our behalf in Christ. The grave cannot hold you and I down because of what God did. We have again been liberated. We have independence from our sin trapping us and killing us from Satan having his way with us. Not anymore. Jesus has flipped it all upside down to his glory. And because of that, he's worth following. And life's worth living. Jesus is the definitive difference between a worldview of meaninglessness and a worldview of meaning, which is basically what's on our banner. And we're going to continue rolling through this as we go through Ecclesiastes. Having said that, just to close again for the fifth time, um, You know what this world needs, don't you? This world needs somebody better than Solomon. This Solomon needs somebody better than Solomon. Right? It needs a better son of David. And you know what? It got it. His name is Jesus. He is the better son of David. He says that. He claims that. Matthew 12, 42. Now one who is greater than Solomon is here, he says. Brothers and sisters, we have work to do. We have hope and meaning to spread to the nations. So let's do that. Happy Fourth of July. Lord God, thank you for um, somewhat putting my brain together today um, so that we can just so that we can just speak of your glory. Uh, you're, you're just you're just overwhelming. So amazing. The more that I look at the scriptures, it doesn't matter what book it is. Um, it's, it is just mind-blowing that you have accomplished um, all of your purposes in the most glorious ways and that you allow us to peek behind the curtain and see it, to glimpse it, to, um, to just be blown away by it, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that I went from someone that uh, had no meaning to somebody... Um, that is just full of so much meaning now because of you. It's because of what you've spoken to me and what you've done to me and what you've promised. Um, It's amazing, Lord, that you've allowed me to know you um, and to be able to enjoy these things, God. And and, and I pray if anyone's here today that that maybe is hearing something for a first time that's kind of clicking or shifting, God, that you would not um, allow them to be elusive, that you would not allow them to get away. Um, I pray that your spirit, Lord, would um, solidify the truths that have been spoken today about you and who you are and who we are and what we need. And so uh, I pray for you to save, God. I pray for you to cause dead men to live. And I pray that we would be... um, those people, God, that would go forward and and, uh, spread the greatest news that has ever been known. And so help us to be excited and faithful to do so. 
in your name. Amen.